Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Last week we we began with a, a study, continuing through our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, but we, we begin with Romans chapter 9. We talked a little bit about how these three chapters really are a, an incredible place for a, a battleground of sorts in the theological persuasions of the evangelical church. Understanding that and just the the deep nature of Romans chapter nine, ten, and eleven, and and the potential division of opinion here, I'm just asking the Spirit of God that He would just help me to share humbly in compassion and love. I want you to know that. If you don't line up with the things that I am communicating related to the eternal purposes of God and salvation, I'm okay with where you're at. If you're on the other side of the spectrum from what you're hearing last week and what you'll hear some more today, I was there. I was there for a long time. And I can tell you that it was a journey. It was a, at times a painful journey for me to try to sort through uh, just the deep doctrinal currents that are here related to God and His saving purposes. So I, I want to I share this passion, compassionately, humbly, but I'm not going to apologize for it because I see it as the clear teaching of the Word of God. So, Romans chapter 9. I gave you last week an overview of the chapter, and I'm encouraging you to keep that uh, somewhere where you can refer back to it as we go through these three chapters, particularly chapter 9, help to see it kind of as a 30,000-foot flyover, how the chapter unfolds and develops, very uh, logical and reasonable how it unfolds in its presentation. And so... Encourage you to keep that in front of you. If you did not hear that, you can always go online, go to our app, uh, listen to that, try to come up to speed here. But we're going to jump into the first three verses this morning. Romans chapter 9, 1 through 3. Let me read those three verses and then we'll spend the rest of the morning talking about them. Paul wrote, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Talked last week as I introduced this chapter that what Paul is doing here is that he is expressing his brokenness over the lost condition of the majority of the Israelite nation, the Jew. And I just want to look closely 
at some of his phrases here to just bring that out. Before I do that, let me just give you the overall outline. I, I, this is an outline I use. Whether I state it or not, almost every time that I preach, it's going to get three main movements, and it's this. The what, the so what, and the now what. The what, the so what, and the now what. Here's the what. What does the text say? That's just coming right at the words of the text, the context in which it, when it, in, in, within which it was written and saying, what was Paul in this situation, what was Paul saying in those three verses? The what? The so what is, what does the text mean? What's the implication or implications we can draw from what was said? And then the now what is where we always should come to in preaching or teaching or Bible study, is, and that is, what must I then do? With what the text has said and what the text means, what should I do about it? How do I line my life up with that truth? So that's where we're going this morning. So let's jump into the what. What does the text say? Paul uses some phrases here to try to explain how he's feeling, what's in his heart. And he spends verse 1 trying to convince them of the truth of what he's going to say in verses 2 and 3. In verse 1, he's opening up saying, I'm going to tell you something and I'm not lying. It's a truthful statement. And in fact, my conscience in, in me can testify that it's the truth and also the Holy Spirit that lives within me is testifying to my conscience that what I am saying is true. And then he starts talking about the inner turmoil in his heart. And in verse 2, he uses the phrase great sorrow. He has great sorrow. And the English translation there is a pretty good translation. Hits the meaning uh, of what Paul is saying. He truly is deeply broken and sorrowful in his heart over the lost condition of the Jew. Then he uses the phrase unceasing anguish. Not only is this a temporary brokenness, an occasional brokenness that he has over the condition of Israel, their lostness, but he is unceasingly in anguish. It doesn't leave. It's always there kind of under the surface with its deep current. In anguish over their lost condition. But then he comes to verse 3 and he makes this outlandish statement. It's a shocking statement. Let me just read it again. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. For I could wish, Paul says, that I was cut off and accursed. That word accursed in the Greek is a word anathema. It's talking about actually being under the curse of God, under His wrath, facing an eternal sentence of hell. And here is the Apostle Paul making this profound statement of anguish that leads him to say, if I could go to hell for you Jews, I'd like to do it. Wow. 
Now that is incredible. That is shocking. In fact, we could say, and I had a gentleman come up to me after first service and say, really, that's an impossible. Paul, he's got to be lying there because he really could not actually wish that that would happen. Well, certainly, humanly speaking, that is impossible. But what the Spirit of God does within our lives is He gives us a love that goes beyond any human ability. We let Him do that. He allows us to have the same heart in growing measure, trying to come up to the full measure of the stature of Christ and think about Christ and His compassion for the world and what He did. He actually did what Paul is saying that I could wish that I myself could do. Jesus actually left heaven and came down and suffered and descended into hell for humanity, taking our punishment. You see, it's the love of Christ that undergirds this. And it's the Spirit of God that is causing that kind of love to well up inside the person of the Apostle Paul so that he could write in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Oh, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my Jewish brothers. That's incredible. But I'm going to make it even more sharp. Think about the context in which Paul was writing this. Think about Paul's position in the mind of the Jew. I'm talking about this large group, this majority group of Israelites that were accursed and cut off. Who was Paul to them? Well, let me just give you the cliff notes. He was enemy number one. He was the man, the young man, who had been the great, zealous faithful keeper of Judaism. A young man far beyond the peers of his day. And yet overnight, what had happened to Paul is he began to follow this blasphemer by the name of Jesus Christ who had claimed to be God and got himself crucified on a cross. He had sold out. He had become the ultimate traitor to the Jew and to the Jewish religious leaders. Not only that, folks, not only had he become the ultimate traitor, now what was he doing? He was trying to get other Jews to come into the faith of this heretic Jesus that he had bought into. I mean, not only was he himself a traitor, but he was threatening Judaism. He, who had so zealously observed the law, now he was just out to wreck the Jewish religion in their mind. And take it a step further, not only that, but he's trying to bring Jew and Gentile together. I mean, that was, that was brutal in the eyes of the Jew. 
I say that to say this. The Jews hated Paul. They hated him. I'm not just talking about they felt that way toward him, but I want you to think about what they acted out toward him. We have several stories. If you read through the book of Acts and a couple of Paul's references to the brutal treatment he had received at the hands of the Jews, he had received floggings at the hands of the Jews multiple times. One point he says, five times from the Jews I received one last shy of a death sentence in flogging. He had been stoned, he'd been beaten, he'd been imprisoned by the hand of the Jews. At one point, the Jews, there was a group of men that wanted him dead so badly that they plotted his death and they made a, an oath, they vowed to one another, we're not going to eat or drink until we have carried out the plan to murder Paul. And that's how they felt about him. Now, with that being the context, go back again to verse 3. And here is Paul saying, Oh, I wish those people that have treated me like that and done that for me, oh, I could wish that I myself could go to hell for them. Wow! That's incredible. That is incredible. How did Paul not just feel about the Jews, how did he act toward the Jews? Well, here's what we find none of in the Scriptures. No reaction, no resentment, no retaliation, no lashing back as he is brutally treated. All that he is doing is that he is weeping for them. He is broken for them. He is praying for them. He's witnessing to them. He's longing for their salvation. So that's the what. That answers the question, what does the text say? That's what the text says. So let's go to the second header there. The so what? What does the text mean? What's an implication that we can draw from the text and what Paul is saying here? Well, I'm going to share that, but I'm going to do that by introducing or mentioning what the number one objection that I personally hear, and I, I have heard others say this, I've read authors that have said this, the number one objection that is voiced when the doctrine of election, of God's unconditional election, that means God determining those He is going to save, Him choosing from eternity past those whom He is going to save so that at some moment in their lives He comes to them with an effectual call and calls them so effectively that they actually come and He grants them the faith to believe and repentance so that they put their faith in Christ and are saved that God elects from eternity past who He's going to do that to. And the number one question or objection that rises in the evangelical conversation related to that is this. It can be said in a 
number of different ways, but kind of the essence of it is this. If the election is true, then why evangelize? I mean, what, what is the purpose of evangelizing if God from eternity past chooses those whom he is going to extend his mercy to, whom he's going to save, and then at a point in their life he's going to come to them based upon that elect decision, that decree that he's determined, and he's going to send a call forth that's going to call them from death to life and accomplish that for which it calls, and that he's going to persevere with them all the way to the end so that they're with him forever in eternity, then why in the world do we need to evangelize? God's going to get it done. Well, there's a very... That's a, by the way, that's a valid question. I used to struggle. I used to be on the other side asking that question with passion. But there's a, there's a valid answer to that, a good answer, a biblical answer to that. It's not easy but it's true and it's good. And I'm going to use the context right here to point to it. Here is Paul. Well, arguably, my opinion, probably the most effective evangelist of human history. Here is the most zealous missionary that ever drew breath. Here is the great church planter of history that worked tirelessly to the end of his life after he got saved, going moment by moment on mission for Christ, seeking to get the saving message of the gospel out regardless of what people said to him, regardless of how they treated him, regardless of the threat that it would mean to his life and ultimately that it actually caused his death. He was so zealous in his missionary pursuits. And yet he is the same guy, the same preacher that strongly consistently preached the unconditional election of God. So just look at the life of Paul. And in the life of Paul, both of those come together. An incredible evangelist, passionate, tirelessly passionate, and yet a man that preached the unconditional election of God, that God chooses those who will be His. Both of those are true. Now, I'm not going to re-preach Romans 9, the overview, but I'm just going to read a few verses just to remind you that Paul, just undeniably in this chapter, referred to the election of God. Romans 9, 10, and 12. He's talking here about Rebecca and her two children, Jacob and Esau. And he's making the point of God's choosing, God's election over one of them. And it says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Did you hear that? Before the kids had done anything good or bad, in why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then the commentary on that, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
she was told the older will serve the younger. Romans 9, 15 and 16 he uses another example in the Old Testament, Moses. And he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he gives a commentary on that, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 9.18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Every one of those passages, Paul makes very strongly two points, and here's the two points. God chooses, he elects, those that he is going to call to himself, that he's going to save, but then he makes this other point. Secondly, that God's choice, God's election is unconditional, that it has nothing to do with the person, has nothing to do with their willing or their working. God does it. He did it in Jacob and not Esau. He said the very same thing to Moses. And the conclusion is, so then he has mercy on whom he wills. It's a prerogative of God. So the point I'm just trying to make here to remind you from last week is this, that the great preacher of election is the greatest missionary of history. Those things are not mutually exclusive terms. If the election of God is true. It does not mean that it nullifies missionary zeal. Not in any way. In fact, I believe that we can, that's the negative way to say it, I believe we can go the other direction and say it very positively and that is this. If election is true, that it actually gives us incentive to witness like nothing else. If God's unconditional election is true, instead of nullifying a motive for sharing Christ, that it should actually be an incentive in us to do so. Let me just give you a few points here. First of all, as the sovereign God, God not only determines the ends, those that He is going to call to Himself, those He has elected through all eternity, but He also determines the means to the ends. He not only determines what's going to happen over there throughout all of eternity, but He also determines how it's going to work from here to there. How this end result is going to become a reality in real time throughout a person's actual life. And what is the means to the end? It's us. It's the church. It's those who have been saved. Those who have accepted Christ. The job, the calling, the commission has been given to us to share the good news so that God, the sovereign one who elects and calls, can use our sharing to activate His effectual call and accomplish that eternal purpose that He decided in eternity past on those He would elect and bring to Himself. You see, we get the privilege 
of witnessing and we do it because God has said to do it as the sovereign God who determines how it gets done as well as that it will get done. Secondly, what that is then is an invitation into his electing purpose. I just talk to you from my own heart for a minute here. Here's the way how differently I used to see this. So I listen, I I'm okay with where you're at. I just want to expose you to some truth and let the Spirit of God do whatever the Spirit of God wants to do in your heart related to this. But I used to be on the opposite end of this conviction. I didn't see what I'm about to share with you now. You see, prior to my understanding of this, salvation was contingent, dependent upon man's choice alone. It was man who chose, and then God, when man chose, God chose them. Man is the first actor, right? Man is the initiator. God is the responder. And with that being true, then what happens to my sharing of Christ? Boy, I better better not screw it up. Because the pressure is on Brad. Man, i got to make sure that I do this right and make this happen because a soul is hanging in the balance and the weight of that is on me. And what happens when you understand the election of God, that pressure is off of me to not witness? No, absolutely not. That's not the conclusion. This is the new conclusion. Man, I get to share the good news of Jesus Christ even in my frailty. Yes, share it as accurately and as passionately and as often as I can can, but I get to participate in what God is doing, and I get to watch and see, God, I wonder who it is that you're going to, when I share, activate that into an effective call so that it goes out and grabs somebody's heart and takes somebody that's dead and brings them to life and gives them eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to understand and a heart to believe so that they get saved, man. I can't wait to see who I get to be a part of with you in the work of salvation. That's a radically different perspective from which to approach evangelism. I much prefer the latter. I much prefer the latter. It gives me way more incentive to witness on the, this side of election than I used to be. But maybe this is really the centerpiece of it all. And I'm convinced that it is. The more that I've thought through this, the more that I've studied the Scriptures, it just strikes so deeply into my heart. And that is this. Election, the truth about God's unconditional free election, is what makes worship possible. It's what makes worship all that it should be both now and in eternity. Because really, what is the essence of worship? It's this. It's saying, God, not to us, but to you. It's all you, God. It's all from you and through you and for you, not us. 
That's the heart of worship. It is like David said in Psalms 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You see, that's the essence of worship, saying, God, it all belongs to you. Nothing in me whatsoever. And you see, if man was the initial actor, if God was the responder and man was the one that first chose so that God would then choose or even if God was the one who in his precognition, his omniscience, looked down through the halls of history and said, oh, I see Ron Bailey over there. He's going to choose me. So therefore, from eternity past, I'm going to choose him. It's still conditioned upon Ron, not God. They would give Ron or whoever had made the choice some reason or some degree for which to boast both now and throughout eternity in heaven. But true worship is this. God, it's all you. It's not us at all. It's all you. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because it's all from you and through you and to you and for you. And at the end of Romans chapter 11, this incredible section of Scripture, that is exactly how Paul concludes the treatment of God's unconditional election. He says in verse 36 of chapter 11, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And what's the result? To Him be glory forever. Amen. You see, unconditional election, God's choosing is an incredible incentive an incredible incentive to witness. It's an incredible incentive to join God and realize that He wants to use me as one of the means to His end, His good eternal end. Wow. And the incentive to witness is that when people come and accept Christ and come to the understanding that God chose them, not because of anything in them at all, but all because of Him, it causes them to say, oh, wow, God, to you and you alone be the glory. To you and you alone. So let me end now with the now what. We've looked at the what. What does the text say? We've looked at the so what. What does the text mean? Implication there. And now let's look at the now what. What must I do? As a follower of Christ, what must I do? And I'm just going to give you five sentences, five different things that I believe should be points of application from this truth and the first one is this that where we need to begin is with a love for and a burden for the lost that that is what God's heart is for all those who are his children he wants you to have a love for and a burden for lost people he wants you to be like he is right He wants you to learn to become more and more like the person of Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. 
He wants to develop in you the full stature of the measure of Christ so that you think like Christ and have Christ's heart and act like Christ. He wants you to love the things He loves. And God so loved the world that He gave His Son to save the world. So that means He wants you to love and have a burden. Number two, what must I do? Share the truth of Christ and His salvation humbly with great compassion. Oh, follower of Jesus, don't, don't ever, don't ever be harsh and arrogant in your sharing of the God who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How could you share about that one with anything but humility and compassion? Number three, Never, never react or retaliate when you are treated harshly because of the position that you take in Christ or because of your sharing of Christ with others. Don't ever react. Don't ever lash back when you are mistreated. Paul did not do that. He set us an example here. Ultimately, the great example is Jesus Christ who looked down at the ones who had nailed him on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Number four, trust God and trust Him to do this. Trust God that when you share Jesus Christ with others, some of them are going to get saved. Trust God that He's going to do that, that He's going to step in because that is the means that He has chosen. And you don't know when He's going to do that. You don't know how He's going to do that. But just trust that God, as you faithfully witness to the truth of the saving message of Jesus Christ, that God will activate that and at times make it an effectual call that goes to a dead person and brings them alive. Trust God to do that. It's what He's about. And then number five, and here's where we're going to end and apply right here in this service. Pray for the lost. Pray for the lost. And pray if you do not have it for a burden for the lost. I think that's a, that's a great prayer. That's a God-honoring, Christ-like prayer to say, God, I look at my own life and very rarely am I ever broken and weeping and losing sleep because of the condition, the lost condition of my closest family members or my friends or even take the example of Paul, my enemies. Ask God to birth that in you. I'm going to ask you to stand, and what we're going to do as we close here, we're getting done a little early for this purpose. We're going to take some time 
Uh, Ash and the worship team is going to come and they're just going to play for a few minutes. They're going to play some music. And I just want us to spend some time praying for lost people. Now, if you're here this morning and that makes you uncomfortable, I'm, I'm sorry that that's the case, but I just really believe God wants us to do this. You're certainly welcome to step out as we begin to pray and begin to sing, but I'm just encouraging you, pray. Pray for lost people. Pray for a burden for the lost. You can come to the altars on either side here. You can come and kneel along the thrust if you'd like to do that. You can stay right at your chair, stand or kneel, whatever you're comfortable with. But let's just spend some time on the so what here, applying the truth and following the example of Paul and crying out for those who do not know him. Let's do that.